I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. If you've followed The Electorate for a while, you'll know that I often talk about the power of state legislatures to shape our lives, and to shape our lives in the most fundamental ways. Conservatives have used their majorities in state legislatures to roll back voting rights, for instance, or to practically ban abortion in some states. Then, of course, there's gerrymandering and those congressional maps that are drawn to lean heavily in favor of Republicans. Well, in this episode, I have a conversation with Gabby Goldstein, one of the co-founders of the Sister District Project, one of the largest and most effective organizations focused on building progressive power in state legislatures. In this episode, Gabby and I discuss just how Republicans gained majorities in state legislatures. And here's a hint. They've been working at this for a long, long, long time, and they have a massive war chest. Debbie breaks down what our lives could look like if the power at the state level were to shift in favor of Democrats. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Gabby Goldstein. Gabby Goldstein, welcome to the podcast. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. I should say welcome back. It's been it's been a while since we we had a conversation, I think. Been a hot minute. It's been, <laughs> it's been a hot... <laughs> what a decade the past year has been. So yes. <laughs> totally. You know, and I have been talking about the importance of state legislative races a lot. And I know that's pretty much all you do. Right? It's sister district, that's your thing. Yes. You know, and I'm gonna keep talking about it until you know the point's driven home, right? Until we have blue trifectas all over the country. But I do want to start today talking about a state that's been really important to this to this whole like battle with state legislatures, Virginia, right? Because we have a blue trifecta in Virginia, and that's technically a southern state. That's kind of surprising. And I think I've heard it described as the blue miracle. <laughs> you know, how, do, how do we pull that off? How did Democrats pull off that trifecta in Virginia? The blue miracle. That's funny. You know, I mean, I think that the first thing to say about Virginia is that it did not happen overnight, and it did not happen out of nowhere. Incredible organizers in Virginia on the ground have been doing the hard work and the, the often, you know, unglamorous work of, you know, being in the trenches and building up power, talking to voters, getting people registered, all the rest for, for a really long time. And I want to shout out Tram Wynn at New Virginia Majority as one of the many incredible activists on the ground in Virginia that helped make that trifecta happen. But it was amazing. Going back to 2017, Virginia holds its legislative and gubernatorial elections in odd years. We don't call them off years. There are no off years in state ledge world, uh, but in odd years. And so Virginia is often a really good barometer for you know how, how voters are feeling for the next year's either presidential or midterm races. And that's definitely the case this year. And in 2017, it was definitely the case that the elections in Virginia were a really resounding, early, emphatic referendum on Trump. Democrat Ralph Northam won the governorship by like nine points, and Democrats picked up 15 seats in the House of Delegates. It's it's really, I mean, no one thought that that was going to happen. Literally, the House was not considered to be close, not even in play. We, we narrowly lost gaining the majority in, in 17, but in 19, picked it up. Both chambers of the state ledge blew for the first time in a generation, and that completed that beautiful blue trifecta. And so, you know, it didn't come out of nowhere. It took a long time, but it took tremendous energy and resources from both local groups and national organizations like our sister district 
And it's been incredible to see what this blue trifecta has been able to do in just two years. I mean, they raised the minimum wage, they rolled back abortion restrictions, they expanded voting access. They've been able to to really, I think, be a leader, not just in the South, which it's often said, certainly, you know, leading the South, but leading the nation as a laboratory whose policy successes, I think, you know, build the promise of progressive federalism, which is something that I'm completely obsessed with. (laughs) I don't want to play devil's advocate, but I'm curious as to, you know, because everyone was fired up in 2017, like everyone, you couldn't get anyone to, you know, stop calling their, you know, senators and their congresspeople and representatives. And in 2019 too, everyone was fired up. I mean, is this a tenuous hold in places like Virginia? I mean, were the constituents just fired up or was it just the, you know, the work on the ground or were Republicans kind of just looking away? I mean, I don't know. It's probably a combination of all three. I mean, look, this trifecta is not solidly blue. This trifecta is in danger this year. And anyone who assumes that Virginia is now solidly blue, just sticking in that column, that assumption is is very wrong. And, you know, it's it's some of the things that you pointed to in terms of, you know, Trump no longer being on the ballot. I mean, certainly there are Republicans running in Virginia this year that are keeping keeping that alive and, and really rolling with the Trump messaging and endorsements and all the rest. You know, one, one way to look at this is on Friday, actually on Thursday and then Friday, two very high quality statewide polls came out in Virginia. One was a, a, a Washington Post poll um, that came out on Friday. Both showed for Democratic Governor Terry McAuliffe in a statistical tie with Glenn Youngkin, who's running on the Republican side among likely voters. And so that is is already an indicator. And these two are in a tie, statistical tie during early voting. So that that's a, a clear indicator that at the top of the ticket this year, this is a battle and it's true all the way down the ballot. And, you know, historically, not always, but historically. Historically, Virginia voters tend to elect governors from the presidential out party, meaning the party that isn't in the White House. You know, so to buck this trend, it's going to take historic levels of Democratic engagement to to hold on to the House of Delegates in Virginia and to hold on to the governor's mansion. Yes, that's kind of my point, the fact that it's tenuous. And we want to have these trifectas across all of these places where Republicans are kind of diminishing democracy. And they're not kind of diminishing democracy. They are. They're like, you know, ripping it apart. I mean, how do we tackle this long term where, you know, we can never be comfortable, right? But where we aren't just like, you know, like fighting tooth and nail to hold on to those majorities in southern states where constituents would actually benefit from things like having more bodily autonomy and more access to the ballot. I guess this is your job. Like, how does that happen? How do you build more solid? I guess if you knew this, you, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But how do you make these less tenuous? Yeah, I mean, this is a long term project. It has to be a long term project. And I hate to say, I like to say, I hate to say, Democrats, progressives are tardy to the party when it comes to paying attention to state <laughs> legislatures. Republicans and, you, you know, just not even Republicans, but conservatives have been engaged in a like century long project around building power in state legislatures. And we're, we've been behind the ball to a huge, huge degree. We're way far behind. I mean, the good news is there are really incredible progressive organizations that are now working double, triple time to build progressive power in states. But this has been a long-term project, very successful project on the right. You know, one one book that I would highly recommend is Jane Mayer's Dark Money, which is an incredible account 
of just how far back the conservative project around states goes, you know, back 100 years. And on our side of the aisle, the sort of infrastructure is not nearly as well-funded, not nearly as well-focused, and and not nearly as strong as it is on the right. So we are fighting a battle here, and, and it has to be a permanent battle. You know, Virginia is a great example of this. Just because we have a Democratic trifecta right now doesn't mean we're going to have one next year. You know, there is no finish line. There is no mission accomplished in this work. It has to be a constant, permanent feature of our activism and our engagement that we care about what's happening in our state legislatures and that we invest our time and resources into keeping them progressive. So when you say that there's a a money disadvantage or a money advantage on the other side, on the conservative side, and I'll read the book, um, Dark Money. That sounds really good. People have recommended that to me before. Like, how much money are we talking about? We're not talking about constituent, (laughs) you know, donations. Are we talking about like corporations and, you know, that kind of money? Is it possible for Democrats to catch up within the next year? you know, 2022, 2024, what are we talking about? <laughs> I, I, you know, I wish that I could say, yes, we can catch up in the next year. And I think you're pointing to something that's very important, which is that the sort of capitalist machinery that is aligned with conservative values, economic values and all the rest invests really heavily into states and state legislatures. And, you know, the prime example here is ALEC, which is the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is somehow a C3, I don't know how, organization that's comprised of conservative state legislators and corporations. And they literally get together every year and decide what their legislative priorities are and draft model bills and get them introduced and passed. And hundreds and hundreds of ALEC bills, copycat bills, they, they're also called because they're literally the same. They just cut and paste, are introduced and passed every year in state legislatures across the country. Um, you know, again, bankrolled by very, you know, well-heeled conservative interests, both individuals like the Kochs and so forth, Co- the Koch brothers, although I guess it's now the Koch brother. Um, <laughs> too soon? Too soon? I don't no. know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but, um, but as well as corporate interests. And so, you know, these, these sorts of large infrastructure pieces like ALEC are extremely effective. And that's the kind of thing that we're, we're up against. So, but this is a really important time right now because the census data was just released in August, right, about a month ago. So having a trifecta in a place like Virginia is good, I believe, in that they will have a hand in drawing the maps. Is that true? Well, so Virginia has a new independent redistricting commission, although there are some there are some political machinations going on in that uh, commission that um, we, you know, sort of yet to see what what's exactly going to play out there. But so far, the Virginia in quote, independent redistricting commission is being, you know, sort of guided and 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 uh, advised by partisans on both sides. So we'll see there. But you're pointing to something very important, which is that redistricting is upon us. <laughs> it will have a very, very critical, you know, set of implications for Everyone, no matter where they live, whether you're in sunny California or snowy Maine, um, what happens in our state legislatures in terms of redrawing these lines, which happens once every decade, is going to impact us all because 
these are the bodies in most states that draw not just state legislative maps, but congressional maps. And the partisan rancor that we have in Congress is a direct result of Republican gerrymandering. So it's these state legislators that are drawing the maps that then affect us all by making Congress more more, more partisan and more polarized. Yeah. So, you know, we've been talking about this. We're looking forward to this data for a few years now, right? It's, it's finally happened. We have the data here. And, you know, honestly, I have to be very honest with you. I'm kind of in the dark. Like, I don't know what's going to happen next. I think, you know, each state has like a schedule as to when they're going to draw the maps. And, you know, someone hinted to me that constituents can get involved or at least go to those those hearings about the maps. Like, what happens right now? So every state is required to redraw their maps every 10 years. In most states, it's the state legislature that is tasked with that process. Um, in some states like Arizona and California and in, you know, in some new states like Virginia, there are independent commissions that take on this duty of drawing the lines for congressional maps and for state ledge maps outside of the legislature. So independent of the legislature. But in most states, it's the legislature that is going to, to to draw these new lines. So the process, you know, they they had to wait for the final granular census data to be released to states, so they could so states could look and figure out who lives where, how many people live where, and and then really get down to drawing these new maps. And now the process has kicked off you know, in most states to to redraw these maps. Um, there are different deadlines for different states in terms of when they have to get these maps finalized. So some of the earliest states that under their own constitutions or other laws or rules in their state have to get this done earlier include Texas, uh, Arizona, North Carolina. Those are all states that need to have their maps done by like pretty close to the end of the year. Some other states have a longer time horizon under their rules so they can finish drawing their maps um, a little bit later into next year. But either way, it's a process that's going to ha- that's happening in each state and it's already on the move. So we've already seen just in the, I mean, in the past week, a number of Republican controlled states that have already released draft maps that are super gerrymandered, super duper gerrymandered. And it's exactly what we thought was going to happen. And And so seeing it start to play out already just under draft maps, it's not unexpected, but we have to be on the alert and we have to be really ready. So for instance, Ohio, literally at like midnight, like in the dead of night, the Republicans in Ohio went ahead and approved state ledge maps that are completely in violation of reforms that the state passed and are completely gerrymandered. So, you know, that's that's one example. I mean, they're they're actually even worse than the current maps. And so, yeah, Texas is another one. Just over the weekend, they've started to release some draft maps that are literally even worse than the current maps, which are already very gerrymandered. So this process is already going on in different states. And, um, you know, it's going to it's going to be a real battle. Yeah, you know, I have to be honest with you. As a constituent, I feel completely helpless. I, I first of all, I think that you can find those dates as to when the maps, the deadlines for the maps for each state. I think you can find them on the state legislative websites and possibly on Ballopedia. But but secondly, let's say I'm a constituent and I live in Ohio or Texas and 
you know, I know that this is happening and I see these draft maps coming out and I'm against it. You know, is there anything I can do? Like, what does being on alert actually mean? Yeah. So first of all, 538 has a really good redistricting page. Um, it's like 538.com slash redistricting 2022 maps. And it lays out exactly like what's going on in each state and what the deadlines are like in a table. And they even include a partisan lean under the old map and the new map for every Every single state. So that I think is a great resource if folks want to follow along um, and see where different states are and what it, what's going on. 538 has a, has a really good page. So one of the things that's different this time around than the last time we did redistricting, which was after the 2010 census, just as a quick footnote for, for folks who weren't following um, closely 10 years ago, which at this point feels like a thousand years ago since yesterday feels like a decade. Basically, the Republicans uh, did a fantastic job of gerrymandering legislative and congressional maps after the last census. There's an amazing book, Required Reading for Everyone, um, called Rat Fucked by Dave Daly. Yeah, I know that book very well. <laughs> he goes into really, you know, great detail about what happened all over the country in this Republican takeover under a, a project they called Red Map, and um, where they, you know, took over state legislatures, and then they were able to draw draw the maps. Democrats then were really back on our heels, right? We didn't have very strong infrastructure. We didn't have much of a plan how to fight back. The good news is this time there is more infrastructure to fight back. And one of the critically important pieces is litigation. So we are prepared to litigate. And Mark Elias is doing, you know, doing God's work at Democracy Docket. And he, you know, just uh, started his own law firm. He's an incredible lawyer getting ready to litigate bad maps way more aggressively than we ever did 10 years ago. And in addition, there's another great piece of infrastructure, an organization called All on the Line, which is an affiliate of the new National Democratic Redistricting Commission, which we didn't have 10 years ago, which is chaired by Eric Holder and started by President Obama as well. And, and they are, All on the Line is helping organize people to provide public testimony in redistricting hearings in their state and submit comments about why fair maps matter to them and their communities. And so I would encourage folks to check out All on the Line and see if there is a commission hearing coming up soon or a redistricting um, committee hearing happening in their state coming up so that folks can get involved. So those are just two really important pieces of infrastructure that we did not have last time around, which I think should give everyone hope, right? I mean, this is not a hopeless situation. We're much more prepared now than we were 10 years ago to fight back. And we've added a lot of really important organizing and litigation um, arrows to our quiver when it comes to what the substance of fighting back really looks like. Well, you know, actually, I really feel more empowered than I did when we started this conversation because I have dark money. I, I've never read that book. I'm going to read that book. The 538 table, which is which is really helpful. Sounds really helpful. I'll put that in the show notes. Then the book Rat Fucks. I think everybody should read that. I'll also put it in the, in the show notes. And then all on the line. And then Mark Elias. So I think those are really good resources that people should 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 follow and, you know, buy those books and, of course, follow and support Sister District. So thank you. That sounds like we do have a roadmap to fight back. Definitely. And, you know, the thing that is dangerous for progressives right now 
is a mission accomplished feeling just because we have a very fragile democratic trifecta in Washington, right? Like Biden was elected by the narrowest margins and, you know, we have this Senate Senate majority by the narrowest margins. And thank you to all the black and brown organizers in Georgia who made that possible. But nonetheless, it's not a mission accomplished. Like I said before, we need to think of our democracy as a permanent project for us. There's no end point. It is a constant, needs to be a constant feature of our lives that we are working to protect and expand our democracy. And so the mission accomplished or complacency feeling that some folks may have, and I get it, we're tired, we're tired. We've, you know, we've been through a lot over the past, you know, few years, but unfortunately it's not over. And we are in a real position if we let that complacency set in and just think that everything's okay because Biden's in office. We're in real danger of losing the Virginia trifecta this year. We're in real danger danger of losing the House majority next year during the midterms. We have to stay fired up. And so, you know, the other thing I would say about Virginia is that it's, you know, early voting has started, but it's not too late to get involved. And so Sister District, our mission is, I know you had my fantastic co-founder Lala on a few weeks ago. Um, uh, our, so, so your folks might um, be familiar with us, but our mission is to build progressive power in state legislatures. And um, we're focused really heavily on Virginia this year. We're running national phone banks every week. Um, real easy to sign up and just spend a couple hours, spend even 20 minutes making calls to voters. You know, we're writing we're writing a lot of postcards. We are sending text messages, raising money, and there is still time to protect this majority that we have in the House in Virginia. Um, but time is running out. So this is the time to get involved. And, it, you know, if, if you have a little bit of time, it really goes a long way at the state legislative level. Yeah, well, I mean, like, it's it's never too late. I mean, like you said, this is an ongoing project. And, you know, we will hopefully be successful in 2021 in the upcoming races. But, you know, after that, it's so ongoing. And it has to be something that we focus on because the difference in not focusing on this and focusing on it could mean not having bodily autonomy, not having access to abortions in several states, right? It, it's a difference between, you know, action on climate change. I could just go on and on, right? It's it's a huge deal. Uh, I mean, a million percent state legislatures are growing in power. I think this is something that the public isn't quite tuned into yet, um, but is absolutely a trend that we need to get comfortable with and get familiar with, which is the, the idea and the fact that state legislatures are growing in power. And it's not just what's happening in Republican-controlled legislatures, which is carving back voting rights, carving back repro. And we know that. But it's not just that. There, there is a broader trend that's happening, um, which is in part, um, a reflection of part of the, the deepest goal of conservative jurisprudence is to narrow federal protections and to kick more back to states. This is a project in the courts, in, in jurisprudence, in legal scholarship that goes back many, many, many decades and has really come to fruition under um, this current Supreme Court and the multitudes of federal judges and state judges that were elected during the Trump years. 
years and under conservative governorships. And so there is this broader trend of carving back federal protections and giving more rights to states, right? We, we think of this, the idea of states' rights, we automatically think about conservative-aligned Americans, right? We, that, that's automatic in our minds. The downside, though, is that states actually are very powerful, and progressives have not invested in creating a narrative around the positive power of federalism at all. Um, we have really focused historically on driving forward federal protections, um, which is great, and we need federal protections, and we should be fighting for that. But it can't be an either or. It has to be an and. We have to fight for federal protections and build power in our states, because regardless of who's in the White House, regardless of, you know, who controls Texas right now, there is just a growing trend of state legislatures and states being really, really powerful, more powerful than ever. We need to get our, our, our act together. And I think just going back to Virginia provides an incredible example of the promise of progressive federalism, the incredible things that, that states do have the power to do. And building towards that vision of the future that we all want and including states as a, an important venue for building that that vision for the future. Right. No, you're you're absolutely right. And like, I love how you say we're, you know, we've been tardy to the party because they they recognize yes. conservatives that, you know, the power was in the states long before we did. But I think, you know, and I've, I've tweeted this before, I've said it before. Democrats need to see this as as a wall, like a firewall. And each piece is important, right? You know, Congress, the Senate, the White House, and, you know, governorships and, you know, legislatures, state legislatures, they're all important to protecting our democracy, right? And, you know, someone said this early on after um, Biden won the election, and I don't like to repeat it very often because it's kind of, you know, kind of dark, but, you know, someone said, you know, the Senate, you know, like, yes, we have a majority, but we're one accident away from not having that majority, right? And the margins are so thin on so many levels of government for Democrats that, you know, we really can't rest. I mean, you know, you know what yes. I mean. <laughs> yes, a million percent. And, you know, the other thing I just want to mention about, you know, we talked about abortion before. What's happening with voting rights and with abortion access are two parts of the same strategy. This is a twofer. This is a classic conservative strategy of, of you know, finding policy wins that do two things at once. And, you know, the voting restrictions that we saw just taking Texas for as an example, if you carve back the ability for people to vote, uh, you are then shielded as a legislative body from their wrath, their ire, when you pass policies like this abortion restriction that, that your public doesn't agree with, right? And so it's it is part of two parts of a coin, this the strategy that that Republican legislatures are using to first carve back voting rights and, and keep people from voting. And then when that when it's harder than ever to vote, passing laws that um, that they know are not supported by by majorities of, of their constituents. We're up against we're up against some some uh, some uh, really cunning strategy, both legal strategy, advocacy strategy, policy strategy, and and like I said, the good news is there there are some really great organizations on the progressive side that are that are working really really hard. But it's incumbent upon all of us to do a little bit and help our states build towards that positive vision of the future, no matter where where you live, because it affects all of us. So so what about public pressure campaigns? Can those be effective in what we've been talking? 
talking about in relation to gerrymandering, in relation to kind of like this unfair legislation or this anti-democratic legislation that's coming down through some states, can they be effective? And what do they look like? A A million percent. (laughs) A million percent. As the great American poet. (laughs) (laughs) I'm waiting for this answer. Okay. Great American poet Patti Smith says the people have the power. And she's very right. Um, She's she's very correct. Um, But only if we use it, right? Only if we organize and and stay focused and um, and and make sure that we have our voices heard. And and public accountability campaigns for legislators and around specific issues are critically important in that process. Um, Putting pressure on our public officials, making them know that we are paying attention and that we are fighting for the issues that we care about is critically important. And one of the great things, you know, just going back to states and state legislatures, you know, not just for elections, but also for accountability, these are such smaller offices than, say, your congressperson or your senator um, or your president, right? Um, These are much smaller units of, of power and of government where your voice can really be heard. And so showing up at the state legislative level can be incredibly effective. So, of course, there's there's sort of public advocacy campaigns, um, issue advocacy campaigns that our great allies, um, you know, our brothers and sisters in labor run, as well as, you know, the, the Planned Parenthoods and NARALs and, and all of the incredible, you know, environmental organizations and all the rest. Um, there are other ways for citizens to, to get involved too, right, for folks to get involved in this process. And one is the ballot initiative process, which has been very effective and so not every state allows people you know folks to to you know gather enough signatures to get a question onto um, the ballot for everyone in the state to vote on but a lot of states do allow it and it's been very very effective in for instance expanding Medicaid in a variety of states Michigan established its independent redistricting commission through a ballot initiative in Florida they used the ballot initiative process to restore the right to vote to formerly incarcerated folks and so you know there's a number of of ways in which using getting a ballot petition going and using the ballot initiative process can be um, a really effective way for for folks to to move their state in a, in in a more progressive direction. And then finally, just you know, wanted to mention redistricting again, which is really that you know, as I said before, we're I think that we're in a much better position going into this round of redistricting than we were ten years ago because of some of the um, increases in our infrastructure around how to fight back, and one of those is around having some infrastructure for folks to have input into the new maps, to know when the the new maps are being drawn, to know who the commissioners are or the legislators who are on the committee to to redraw the maps, showing up, providing testimony, keeping the pressure on. And the other piece is just public awareness, right? We, you know, there's there's a higher salience around redistricting now than there was 10 years ago when, frankly, no one knew what gerrymandering even was. Nobody, you know, it was just wonky and who even knows? It's too crazy and obscure to care. Um, but that's not the case now. And the public is, is a big reason 
why, right? People are paying attention. People are standing up for fair districts and for democracy. And so all of that is incredibly impactful and a little goes a long way. You don't, we don't all have to be full-time activists to, you know, to have our, our, our voices heard and to, to spend a little time on this stuff. Um, just add it. We can all add it in a little bit into what we do and it'll make a huge difference. Wow. Well, Gabby Goldstein, thank you so much again for joining me. I love Sister District, one of, one of my favorite organizations, and I, I truly appreciate every time I talk to you, your passion on this issue. So thank you so much for everything you've done. Thank you so much. It's great to chat. <laughs>